The views and opinions expressed in the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the producers, the affiliates, or digital platforms hosting this podcast. All content is for the purposes of education, conjecture, and at times entertainment. We promote inclusiveness and diversity. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Into the Deep with Jay Caster. Welcome to Into the Deep. I'm Jay Costa. I am exuberant about today's guest. He's a guitarist, a songwriter, a producer, a singer, and founding member of the band Cynic. He's developed numerous other projects, including Eon Spoke, Onward with Love, as well as a solo project, and a myriad of television and film compositions. Today's guest, is Paul Masvidal. Paul and I just started talking right off the rip, and so much so that like, I just instinctively hit the record button because it just felt so natural and so organic. We start out by where Paul's at, surrounded by all this great art, and it starts out with this painting that a very good friend of his made in a very Vermeer style. And what you don't hear on the recording is that painting behind him is a painting that his father brought home from Puerto Rico of where he was born. The same building, the same street. These are the conversations I live for. And I, I really, I'm, I'm tingling right now just thinking about Paul and I's conversation and how I resonate with him on so many levels. So join me as we seek light and journey into the deep with Paul Masvidal. Enjoy. Yeah, it's my friend, um, Richard Stigley, who does this type of work. And um, he just, you know, I still have the note, you know, from oh. when he did it to me and stuff. And But yeah, it's like kind of insane, this type of, you know, it's encouraging to know that there's painters out there that still um, are kind of, like keeping it traditional and you know what I mean? Like yeah. have the cool techniques and study traditional painting and oils and stuff. And so it's really kind of rad. Um, and that's funny. I'll give you another background. This piece, these two guys, which are like two Jaguar heads are, um, I got these when I was doing the, one of those um, tours. What's the, the, the metal boat tour, like uh, 70,000 tons. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we did one where we played a death to all set and cynic played as well. And, um, and it was, and one of the stops, I guess on that particular tour or that, that, that cruise ride was like a, some part of Mexico. And I saw these like kind of Panther, Panther Jaguar heads, which really spoke to me because they, you know, they referenced a lot of the, it's like kind of the animal in the ayahuasca world, you know, the vision mm. and stuff that's known in the Amazon and stuff. So I was like, these are fucking cool. They're hand carved. And <sighs> yeah. So we got some interesting kind of history here. That's kind of very personal. You know? oh, I love that. It's, and it's, yeah. it just carries so much great energy with it too. And I love that. Yeah. Oh, this is yeah. awesome. Thank you for that mini tour. That was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of different, so I'm glad we're kind of 
well, might as well just leave this rather than my typical kind of spacey background. I have this Venosa wallpaper that I use. <laughs> but I think this is cool. Where are you at? Are you so? Cool? I'm in Massachusetts. Um, I'm yeah, a, I, I heard a kind of Mass Bostony accent going no, on. Right on. Yeah, I'm originally from Rhode Island, but currently living in Massachusetts. And um, wow. yeah, yeah. Rhode Island is considered uh, New England, right? I mean, it's proper New England. So yeah. Yeah. It's been great. My, my whole life done some traveling, you know, and so it's, it's been wonderful. So now I, uh, you know, right now currently residing in Massachusetts, so it's not so oh, bad. That's nice. Yeah. yeah. Oh, this, this is great. I'm so glad. Um, it's, and this is like exactly the pace of like what we do or what I do on the podcast, just conversational and just super relaxed and, uh, talk about things and i love it so i appreciate you taking the time of course no i'm happy to happy to have a conversation with you and it's always interesting to kind of do things outside the box you know yes typical things that a lot of of people you just you get scared can get very repetitious and redundant so it's nice to kind of leave those traditional promotional formalities and things that are less common you know I agree. That's kind of the catalyst behind, you know, why I, I do this. Um, I just love it. And, you know, exploration and consciousness and just expression and all of it is just so meaningful. So nice. Well, been in the path for a bit, you've been doing the, the sitting practices and try to stay. I try to stay on top of myself as much as I can. Um, I do work a regular job regular job and then i do this on the side also music and art and and things like that so this but this has been such a for me it's been a great escape uh sort of speak not escape but i guess something to channel energy into uh, my mom had passed away about a year and a half ago and so this has been kind of very cathartic for me to be able to talk with people and let people share stories and like in a time that i feel like everyone's so polarized. And if we just focused on our commonalities that we could just bring people together. And that was something my mother really instilled within me. So um, I feel like I'm, I'm really doing that now with having the podcast and talking with people. That's really beautiful. I'm, I'm sorry about your mother. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. And, you know, I, I still think of it as, you know, you know, her, her energy is always with me. She's always here. She's left me with so much. So it'll just, you know, traverse the the multiverse and keep going through her actions, through my actions and so on and so forth into the world. So, yeah, I think that's a good, healthy reminder that the people we lose, you know, in this realm, uh, oftentimes we can embody their energy. It kind of comes through us in a different way and, and the relationship still is intact. It's just taking on a different form, right? It's you can still communicate with them and have dialogue and maintain that kind of connection, but it's, it's shifting. And the tricky part is kind of identifying with them now in this other way, because we're so used to the physical representation, but obviously your mom was beyond a body. She was a spirit, right. And inhabiting a body. So it's kind of like, okay, how do I connect with them in that space? And, you know, it's this attachment stuff. I keep, 
we're so used to the form and the attachment and, you know, having gone through the loss of, of my two mates really in 2020 and having lost a lot of other people, it was, I mean, I went through a whole period of grieving, which I, I haven't experienced actually thinking to come to think of it um, lately, which is the first really year or so was like, phantom limb thing where I felt like literally a part of my body was missing because I had so identified and forged my identity with these guys from a young age, especially Reiner, that it was like, whoa, where, like, I felt like part of me was not there, you know, and it was like, oh, wait, like, and so it's trying to, like, get familiar with that, like, where, because I didn't know, I didn't realize how connected energetically we were beyond form you know so it's there is that kind of like moving forward and honoring their legacy i mean mothers you know that's that's huge especially if we were close to our mothers i mean that's and and kind of honoring who they were and embodying their energy and kind of so you it's so beautiful that you're carrying on this and kind of the birth of this was came out of that. That's a, a powerful place to birth an idea. Oh, thank you. I, I feel that deep within me, you know, and I feel like in her own way, somehow in some way, there's still communication that happens, whether it's through dreams or through different experiences that I've had. It's almost like these like breadcrumbs that have like led me to doing this now. And I'm just so grateful for it. If we're just open yeah. to it, you know? How cool. Yeah. You have siblings as well, or? I'm so sorry? You have siblings, you got? I do, yeah. I have an older brother. Um, and he, uh, he and my father, we're all taking it, you know, difficult, you know, in a difficult way. But, um, you know, he, he's also creative, but more mechanically inclined. I was, I was the, the musician and kept going with the music. And he does music, but then I'm more of the, you know, emotional emotive one, you know, so we, we talk with each other about these things and how we're feeling, you know, and I put myself, you know, in a therapy just so I could, you know, process some of this stuff and talk about it, sit with it and really just try to try to make sense, you know, like navigating life without, you know, my best friend, you know, someone who I could bounce things off of all the time, anytime. So, you know, that's an adjustment in and of itself. So it's, but I, I feel it right with me, you know, uh, with everything that I do. So, yeah. Yeah. There's that saying, I don't know, I'm not going to quote it right, but that uh, a lot of the grief is just the love that you had for them. It's kind of trying to find its way, you know, it's, it's really, it's an expression of how much love was there. Well, some, um, yeah, and I don't know that there's any preparation we can do for the loss of our mothers. You know, there's mm. no, there's no like if we can think we can do all these practices and think we can. It's, it's its own journey, and I have, I still have mine, but I know having some dear friends who've lost theirs. It's, it's just you. Uh, you can sense. It's just that's that's the one you can't even. You can never practice or be prepared for. Just. Yeah. And it's, and I think you're right too with, you know, no matter how much you practice, how much you try to practice that non-attachment, 
it's, you know, in this physical carbon form, like we're just so used to like that physical form. And I guess in a way it's, it's, it's transformative from, from my spiritual journey, from my, you know, learning from that. And like, what are these lessons? You know, I'm trying to look at it as a, a mirror, so to speak, what, what's in this for me to learn from. Mm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And like, at some point we have to like go beyond intellectualizing it, you know, and just, it's like the experiential aspect of that whole dynamic too is so deep and so rich and it can't be forced. It's like you have to go through it. You have to walk the path and there's no way to kind of shortcut that or find a solution for it's like you know my tendency as a kid especially coming from a home that was a lot of just a lot of confusion and um divorces and kind of relational problems between the parental figures not really so much with me with them but just what they were going through and then remarriages and divorces and so a lot of instability and my tendency as a thinker and a kind of kid that was put in therapy at a young age because my mother was so disoriented by this, I had this tendency to go inward and not kind of, I didn't act out outwardly other than what she found out was that I was in the playground as a child. I was not participating with the kids at recess and stuff. I was literally just sitting under a tree at like five, six years old, like, you know, we're talking first grade, second grade. And like, just like, I wouldn't play. I wouldn't play with the kids. And there was the kids trying to encourage me. And I, I was just internalizing all of the stuff as an empathetic, empathetic being. Like I was just taking on, I think like kids do that are hypersensitive, the sponge of their, their suffering, their ancestral trauma that they were, carrying on from their families and acting out so that as this little creative kid, I just like embodied it and went like this. And my mom was so confused because I didn't communicate um, that she put me in therapy. And um, my joke is always, I was raised by therapists because I started at about five years old um, and had different experiences with therapists, a classic betrayal experience, like where they went to my parents and said things they, they, that I felt like I had the therapist trust. And that's when I started to realize it's all about trust in terms of therapy to patient relationship, because the more you trust them, the more you can open, you know, and have a space where you can be heard. And cause they're just directing a, a, a process. It's not, they're not providing answers. Although some are more, you know, instructive than others and some are more proactive, which is, can be awesome. But, um, but yeah, it was really a hell of a journey kind of, and I, I'm so grateful because one of the later ones I had kind of by high school was Jungian and got into like dream analysis. And I was deep into dreams and like, writing them down and doing this whole dream kind of affirmation before bed at night. And like, I would have lucid dreaming and I started to get into that practice in the astral projection, you know, it was just like dream work. And um, so here I've got this therapist who I'm like 
running off my dreams to, and they're like breaking them down in this incredibly profound way that I didn't even know about the Jungian stuff. And it was like my mind open. But it was that moment where I started to realize that I had to learn how to essentially become my own therapist, right? And to learn how to work with my mind and that I had to take responsibility for what was happening here. I couldn't blame my parents anymore. I couldn't see, I had to see them as humans that did the best they could. And it's really, that was like such a moment of grace and maturity, like an aha moment where you start to see your parents as people and you're like, holy shit, they were just doing the fucking working with what they had. And to kind of take, and it's really empowering place too for a child because it was like, wait, oh fuck, this is my, my journey. I've got to, I got to sort this out. I got to find my way through this fucking maze I've incarnated into (laughs) and try and make sense of all this shit and like meaning and purpose and not blaming. And do you know what I mean? It was Mm -hmm. so rich. And to have those lessons early on, it was game changing. So it's, um, yeah. I mean, did you have anything like that? Like early mentors kind of people that, Luckily, yeah, I did. My my mother was great at that. You know, she was always receptive to how much I would internalize things. You know, mm. you know, I would be upset if other people were upset. I'd be, you know, it would upset me if I saw any kind of like violent stuff going on. You know, and even at a young age, just my connection with like animals. You know, I just had this like weird, like not weird, but like for a kid. You know, I had a lot of peers that didn't think much of just like hurting ants and like hurting insects. And I remember at a young age, just not being okay with that. And, and, you you know, and my, my parents just being, being, you know, very encouraging of of that behavior. They just, they never made me feel that I shouldn't be myself. So that I'm, I'm always grateful for. And I had a, a teacher in art that really helped me just kind of be okay with, how I perceived or how I was perceiving the world because it was so confusing for me as a, as an adolescent, full disclosure, it was like, I didn't really understand some of my peers perspectives on things. Um, I was found it challenging to, to be able to express myself in the way that I, I knew I felt a certain way and I didn't know how to get it out. If that makes sense. Yeah. Do you remember the teacher's name? Yeah. So I, I had a few actually in, in particular. So um, the, the first one um, was Mr. Marks. Then I had after him, it was Mr. Purdy, who was now an English teacher. He was the other one who opened up uh, or got me to open up. And I remember the, one of the last times I saw Mr. Purdy, um, my band was playing a show and he came with his daughter and I never realized he'd be there. It was like a few years after I had graduated and it was the last time I got to see him. He has since passed on. And I, I remember thanking him that night for all that he had done because he just, he encouraged me to, to just be open and be myself uh, regardless of, you know, not feeling like I fit in with a lot of my peers. So um, I'm glad I got that moment with him. That's really special. Yeah. Yeah. I was asking if you remembered their name because I remember the name you kind of brought this up for me of a teacher in high school um, was an English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Adams. 
I would imagine she's passed by now too. I remember kind of checking in with her maybe by my mid twenties or something, but then there was no contact again. And she was the lady who I was bringing like my lyrics to, you know, like short songs I was working on. And, um, and at the time I was, you know, it's that angst of the teens and I was very kind of political and, you know, system and, and, um, I'll never forget her like looking at me like straight in the eye one day and reading, just saying, these are really good. And I love this and would give me these encouraging, encouraging feedback. And then one day she goes, you know, one day you're going to be writing about love mm. and you're going to stop the war with the world and realize the war you're waging is, is a war that's within yourself. And that you it's like this profound, like epic <laughs> kind of thing that I didn't get at the time. I just thought it was so sweet that she kind of saw that, you know, and cause it was almost like, what, you know, like it was like, no, the world's wretched and I'm going to fight this place. And I'm, and, um, it's, um, it's, I still have those, you know, moments where it's like, I can see through the dance you know, you see the dance of aliveness, the whole game of separation, the reality of this existence. We live in this realm where things are just inherently gnarly and dysfunctional. And at the same time, it's to not argue with it, to realize it's part of the whole thing unfolding, that it's it's exactly what it needs to be. So it's not about like, turning the other cheek and accepting because you always, we always have to kind of put our, we have to kind of do our best to kind of raise the way that we're interacting with this reality in a way that feels more wholesome and conscious, you know, and has more integrity, but at the same time, like fully accepting it too. It's a weird paradoxical environment where you have to just like embrace it. Right. And just like, you know, uh, what's her name? Um, who I love, um, she wrote, uh, who would you be without your story? Um, uh, she's, she's one of her sayings and I always quoted is like, um, you know, like if you argue with reality, you never win. Right. It's like, you're like fighting something that doesn't, it's, so it's, it's again about accepting things as they are and, but also like you do what you do to change within yourself to change what's happening externally rather than like, you know, fighting it, the external kind of representation of it. It's almost like if you can shift that thing, that shadow that you're at war with, that's represented in you externally because it's all a mirror. We're all, we're all one thing kind of mirroring each other's stuff. If we can change, if we can kind of transform that within ourselves, then it starts to shift externally, right? It's this, and it's really, a, it's, it takes a lot to kind of get to where you really get that, you know, and where it starts to shift. And it's the hardest work. It's not, and it sounds like cliche stuff these days. There's so many hashtags with this type of words. And you know what I mean? These kind totally. of patch phrases in the spiritual 101 world but it always goes back to all that stuff it's always so simple you know you can't burn those cliches out they're 
you know, who was I talking about this the other day? It was like, because I have an older brother who's a yogi and a major yoga dude. And we get in these discussions all the time because he's so about the roots of pure yoga, you know, and like purist yoga. And so he'll see a lot of these yoga studios popping up all over the country. And he's like, they're not teaching yoga. They're just, it's exercise. You know, that's an exercise studio. And I get what he's saying because the roots of Hatha yoga was to strengthen your spine so that you could sit longer. It was just for your meditation practice. It's just literally there to kind of get you to a place where you meditate for longer hours. And obviously there's all those branches of yoga, but, you know, I would respond to him with things like, hey, dude, you know, like, let it be cheapened. There's, it's an entry point for something incredibly profound, right? And in the same way that the peace sign, you know, is like it, uh, people in the hippies in the 60s were like, oh, it's lost its meaning. It's gotten, you know, people that don't really believe in peace are doing this. And it's like, let it be cheapened, man. Like whatever way we can bring more ease to this fucking crazy place where we're still murdering each other and they're still warring people. I mean, we're still fucking my land, your land. I'm going to kill you. I mean, it's incredible that we're still in this place. You know what I mean? We're still like, so we're still cavemen. It's just more, it's just more sophisticated now with the, with now it's like, you know, it's crazy. It's almost, I mean, we're still bombing, obviously look at Ukraine stuff, but it's like, just, it's almost more now become more tech, you know, technology based. It's, the war is like with hacking and fucking right. It's so trippy, you know, and it'll keep evolving, but it's still the same idea. It's, it's still the two dudes arguing on the street. You know, it's, it's just like that metaphor still applies. It's, it's kind of just manifests in different ways. Right. So true. And it's like that level of barbarism that continues and perpetuates. And it just, like you said, it finds new forms, but it's just, yeah. and I mean, you can trace it back to greed and ego, you know, of just like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's mostly men. Yeah. Historically, it's like, there's been some powerful Queens, I guess, and figures with women, but in general, women don't, have that aggression built into them that the men do it's like it's weird and i don't want to break it you know get into a like a gender thing but it is like if you get into the male female general dynamic i mean women tend to be more empathic they're like the feminine aspects of of the psyche you know it's more empathic it's more open it's more heart-based it's you know and I mean, look at even when we were kids in school, it's like the girls were cool with just like holding hands and sitting, talking to each other. And we had to like be tough and not supposed to cry or whatever the case, you know, mm -hmm. I think that's changing and evolving a little bit and getting better as well as parents. But there's still, you know, it's still going on. You know, yeah. their work is, is like, and at least in our lifetime, I feel like it's there's not enough we can do. <laughs> it's, a, it's just an uphill battle that we're going to keep fighting. And But this is what we're here to do, man. Right? I love, I love that. Yeah. And I love the point you brought up earlier. Like, 
let it be cheapened. If it's an entry point, you know, if it's a way for someone to discover. It's a little scene, man, you know, like, and it's who knows, like, I mean, I even think about this. I was telling this to, to like my manager recently, like in a conversation we were sitting down and I said, you know, I was in Mexico for a couple months this past year and I was hanging out at this little beach town off the Oaxacan coast between Mazunte and Zipolite. And I was getting these little guys wrapped, you know, these little organized pieces. I was getting them wrapped with these macrame workers. There's these little local artists there that do beautiful macrame work. And I had these kind of made kind of cuff bracelets. Oh, gorgeous. Yeah, I was just bringing the little organ pieces and they were doing the wraps. And I was hanging out with some dear friends and brothers in this kind of hippie towns, you know, just really like one's nudist kind of like vibe and the other one's just like yogis and a lot of retreatants and stuff. And I was telling them this story how one of these days I was literally walking in this little town, you know, tiny little village off the coast of Mexico, right? The West coast, like Oaxacan coast South, like near kind of Guatemalan border. And I, I literally some dude like, passes me on a moped and like just like stops his moped and gets off and he goes Paul Masvidal and I was like yeah and he's like oh my name is Marco da 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 and he was this Italian dude who um who's like a yogi and he said this to me and we became friends since and I kept in touch with him hung out with him and his wife but he um he told me that it was a poem from Focus you know from Sentiment like that I had, you know, gotten permission to use from Self-Realization Fellowship. It was like that whole, the spiritual message in Cynic put me on the path. And now I'm a full-time yogi and I have this whole school. And I'm, he's like one of the biggest names in that part of region of Mexico and Italy. He has two schools and this really cool program. And he's transforming lives. And I was like, I just almost started crying. You know what I mean? Like, dude. But it that reminds me, it's that entry point. All it took was that little thing. And a lot of like Vedic view would say, oh, that's the karmic thing. It's the trigger that they had it in them already. They just needed that one thing to kind of open it up. You know, there's a story of like, I think even maybe it's told with Christ being a carpenter. But like, I, I remember hearing about some teacher, Advaita teacher, non-dualism teacher who like, literally had no background in, in the spiritual path and was fucking hammering a nail into a wall as a carpenter and bam had a full fucking kundalini opening saw everything had full download of all the information tries to process it and then next thing you know he's a fucking teacher it makes me think of like a cartoli you know fucking homeless you know and it's an interesting line where they you you know these people straddle because when you have that moment of recognition and awareness, it's almost like in that annihilation of the ego, the practical nature of working with reality. It's like there's people on these streets where I am in Los Angeles and major cities that are like had those blowouts but didn't know how to integrate, and it's so it's that fine line of like enlightenment but also like craziness, like because you can't. You know what I mean? And that happens a lot where people, it's like a blast. Maybe it goes into the direction of a mental illness thing because they don't know how to integrate. And I think that's what's beauty with, beautiful with a lot of the shamanic cultures is they 
how they treat that. You know what I mean? They kind of work with them in these collective intelligence ways of healing trauma and or that degree of awareness and seeing it as maybe a gift rather than some illness. And so it's, it's so deep. I mean, I'm just scratching the surface. of. <laughs> I don't even know. I'm going into all these like, but again, it's, I can't remember what our point was. Yeah, it's the entry point, you know, the entry point, the hammer, the nail in the wall, the the the, the poem in a song, you know, the lyrics. It's the the peace sign, the yoga class, right? Whatever it takes to to have us take a look, to look a little deeper into what the hell we're doing here, going on. You know, to look at our minds. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's really, and that's what, you know, with art, with music, you know, all forms of expression, you know. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's like these seeds, you've, you know, you've been planting these seeds of consciousness. You know, you've been making conscious art and music for quite some time. And I, I don't know. Like, was it ever frustrating that like, you were hopeful that maybe someone would catch on or folks would, it would resonate with some people or maybe. Could oh. be... Yeah. Dude, I, I'll never forget, you know, like soul crushing reviews of focus back in the day of like, who the fuck does this guy think he is fucking writing lyrics like this? And like, this is cheesy or, putting it down and I was like thinking, man, those were some of my most vulnerable moments and I'm being dissed because the metal scene was so hard and so tough. And it's like, who's this, you know, what is, what it, you know, it's just like heart wrenching for me because I felt like I was really putting myself out there and here I'm being, but then I realized it's taken years to kind of come around and realize this is the risk you take with anything where you try and, reveal yourself in a vulnerable way because you're kind of really referencing and mirroring the other's own shadow, their own, like whatever, we can't attack someone else's fault unless we have them within ourselves. It's like, we have to be able to see them within to even point the finger at somebody else. It's like, that's some unclaimed inner work right there, dude. Careful what you say. Mm-hmm power of those words because it's really our stuff all the time right with all of our so but it's taken me a while to get around to that because i of course the bruised you know ego personality paul was like oh fuck oh maybe he's right maybe it is i'm trying too hard to say something and you know you can't help but like the insecure artist sure oh fuck what am i doing like in so it's like second guessing, you know, it's, so there's so many layers to, to kind of get to the point where you have to just, and I don't, you know, it's a fine line because there's a lot of people who say, you just have to not care. Don't give a fuck because no one else gives a fuck. And it's like, no, I, I don't want to get to where it feels like it's a fine line with that. Cause that could come off as jaded. Do you mm. know what I mean? It's like indifferent. Right. And the whole way that you can come from writing from that place is being not jaded. It's being still the child that you're can be really pure and 
in touch with something that feels really earnest and beautiful and not intellectually jaded. Because there was even a moment where I was really careful, like using the word love. I mean, I remember those high school days, I was like, the word love in my lyrics, are you kidding me? You know, like too intellectually kind of corrupted to to open myself. But I realized, man, if you can use that word, if you can approach those things from a place of genuine, that's like, that's, that's true power. Like that's, that's fucking way beyond thinking you're too cool for school to use the word or too smart or because there's all those intellectual variants of pop artists that were put that down too. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, man, it's, I don't know that there's a right way. We're just all doing what we can. And for me, it has been an onion, you know, process of getting more and more comfortable with just trying to tell the truth mm -hmm. in my own, like, you know, and it's not to say my version of the truth, but because truth is universal, but that's the point. I think when you get to the point of universal truth, that's when it really resonates and echoes in everybody because we all, we all meet there. But it's the hardest thing in the world to, to kind of capture that, especially lyric writing. It's, I found like words, you know, and writing, which I'm so fascinated with. And most of my dearest friends are writers, you know, and it's like, I, so I really connect with, with writers and their whole thing is using words to kind of convey ideas and such a powerful medium. I and mean, it's really the medium in which we use, we're all trying to get things across, right? So it's, um, and lyric writing, fuck man, it's, yeah, it's, sometimes it's easy in terms of things just come through and it's like, bam, oh, there's the idea. But most of the time it's like really an excavation of just like, wow, what am I getting at? And, and I showed a picture to a friend of mine who helps me with some website stuff recently of this Eon Spoke, like, Sephiro thing that I did of, like, the Tree of Life. Yeah. The notes of it, like, all my notes and, like, the original sketches and drawings. It was so fucking amazed that was so packed and layered. And I, like... Said and I said something to him like you know I was like I can't believe the shit I put myself through <laughs> get to the get to what I was trying to say and he's like and he's like and only you would care so much to do that like it was like but it was like I, and I was like I know it's a it's straddling that line of like insanity where it's like because you're it's not practical at all because <laughs> at the end of the day you're trying to distill it to like an artistic expression. And that's where some of the most profound happens. It's so simple, yet it has this insane profundity that isn't visible. Uh, you know what I mean? It's on the surface. It just looks so simple. It's just like, oh, that's just so beautiful. But little do you know, there's this whole fucking thing underneath. So I'm always finding it's like a subtraction process, right? You're just trying to subtract and subtract and... And what's hilarious with Cynic is you would think it's the opposite because it's so layered in the work. Thinking about Ascension Codes, you know, we're talking about potentially releasing the record as an instrumental mix. And it's like, it is so melodically driven, but I did this playthrough recently that's coming out in September um, of one of the songs, Aurora. And 
did it instrumental and it's like holy shit this song works without vocals as a complete guitar dense like it's a guitar song you know and it's a band song but it's just packed with fucking shit and and i was thinking like wow like that that's that's okay i guess it's okay that record has become another super dense thing that is not distilled. It's packed. Although the segues like that, uh, you know, my, my brother, he goes by the name dark, um, Rupam did are so they're almost like palate cleansers. Cause mm. they're dense fucking packed information layers just, and then palate cleanse you know, harmonics and space and then back into the journey of, but I mean, yeah, it's like the, all the melodies, everything, like, it's like, I'm thinking, man, and in some way the vocals were treated as another instrument. They're not really in your face. So they're just like part of the mix of the tapestry, you know, but um, it makes for records that are harder to, um, to ingest, you know, and this is coming back to focus, which is the 30th anniversary next year. It's like, I, you know, telling this to Matt Lynch, my drummer who was staying with me last night, I was like, I was like, these records have their own timeline. You know, it took 12, 13 years for people to get focused really. And like, I feel like it's, we're not part of like any pop culture or like movement or, you know, like, it's as much as it is of the times, it's also not. And like, just it, it finds itself, it does its own thing. It's, it's, it's not in competition with the times. It just let it, put it out there and let it do its thing and have, just have patience with it. I mean, there's always that sense of urgency. And of course the record company wants their money back. Right. So they're just like urgent, urgent, urgent. But we're just like, yeah, I guess that's not where this music comes from. It's not that kind of music. <laughs> it's not. But it's cool when it resonates with the times, and that's the beauty of some. Sometimes when art does that, when it kind of has, you have a moment where you break through, and there's a collective kind of. That's kind of amazing. Um, if with profound art, you know, like a real. Cause that's really kind of like, it makes me think we're Pink Floyd big in their time. I think they didn't break through till like, was it the wall that was their big breakthrough? Cause I think even the wall started out as like a art project kind of thing with the film. And then it had a later, but that was maybe their moment actually, was it? I don't know. I don't know the story of, of Pink Floyd in that sense, but it, I think that was when they kind of, reached the kind of pop culture collective masses, right? Was mm. was it the wall? Because they had all those weird proggy fucking psychedelics. Yes. Which are great. <laughs> great. Yeah. Wall and like dark side were like that dark kind side. of like, you know, the right time, right place. And, you know, it, again, I think is it I guess the question is, is it taking the collective consciousness to catch up right. you know, is that you know because that's how you know you brought up the unspoke record uh, that you know like it's you know were you into kabbalah before yeah. or, or you know and like that and that was the inspiration 
Yeah, and Ian Spoke played shows at Kabbalah Center in LA and, and London. We had this beautiful show in London, man. It was like this magical evening. And so I was deep into into the, the mysticism of, of Kabbalah, and I still am. I'm fascinated. I think I first got turned on to it from The Secret, Secret Teachings of All Ages, that book, um, which, um, you know, Manly P. Hall. And I just saw these crazy diagrams of row and fucking all these writings and how it merged with all the other great teachings and and what it pointed to and it was like fuck this is so cool you know and i just love the complexity of the diagram and the tree of life and how it represents the body and all these you know what i mean it's so profound yeah and it's totally connected to all the universal truths so yeah that be, kind of became the symbology of eon spokes art stuff and and in the reissue kind of thing that's going to come out, like the physicals of it, which we're working on now, it's like I've been almost finally now where I can distill it. I'm reducing it. I'm pulling it back just to the symbol. And I'm thinking I don't have to over-articulate all these things that I was really trying to connect the dots with, like I Ching and fucking astrology. And I was trying to merge all of that into this crazy maze and numerology and now i'm like i don't have to do all that like you can just have the song title a co the color and a symbol and that's enough <laughs> i mean it took fucking 20 years <laughs> to that where i'm like i guess yeah it's been almost fucking 20 years it's insane wow because focus is having its 30th which is crazy next year but yeah, Eon Spoke, I think that record, we self-released it in like 01 and then 04 was it when SPV put it out. But yeah, it's it's been almost 20 years. God, wow. The passage of time, another weird thing that we're... <laughs> oh, right. You know, it's like, what is this thing? It speeds up, it slows down, it's like... It's different for everybody. We're all different versions of how we experience it. It's fascinating, you know. Right, and and just and and how it correlates to music and art and like the, the impact it has on measure and meter and everything else. It's like, whoa, yeah, yeah. Like you know who was really killer about that, and I think drummers in general should be because they're like all about the math really they're keeping time right and but reiner you know he was like just the numbers thing and he really just had this innate understanding of how things broke down he understood it in his body and he could kind of articulate that in a really interesting way and i guess it kind of got expressed as a drummer just like he kind of became this embodiment of because it was just like anything that I couldn't intellectualize, but I knew in my body, he could just immediately express it like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, you know, seven against four or whatever, like these like polyrhythmic things and stuff. He would just immediately know how to kind of show you how it worked, you know, the right hand, and the left hand. And it was like, wow, that's so cool. You know? But that's a drummer's job is to kind of capture it in their body and express it you know, as a, as a, like a, I guess as a 
as a rhythm. It's so it's in nature. It's everywhere. You know, it's in speech patterns. It's like it's fascinating how it all is so interconnected. And to your point earlier, like how it's different. You know, time is different for everyone. Our perception of it. Yet here in this moment or this time where you're you're writing music and you're you're this conduit and you're expressing it through notes and then here's this rhythm and this beat and it's just coming together and it's just such a magic yeah. that is just transforming the world around us at least that's how i feel and see it yeah yeah it's like you just show up for a process and i think that's also the mysterious aspect of the kind of music you know, Cynic has always made, and really I've approached it, I think, since a young age, as though, although I got into intellectualizing music, kind of studying classical guitar as a kid, and then the jazz stuff, and chords, and harmony, and like really intellectualizing this stuff, I always had that thread of connection to like the, the raw kid that didn't know what he was doing thing, and I think that was where I got lucky in that I got to find finesse that line of like being having this progressive element of the, the music, but never swallowing how it felt. It was always coming from this empathic, like beginner mind state that didn't overly intellectualize what was happening and trusted in the unorthodox and the the humility in which you had to meet this stuff. Like you don't quite. Because you can get, you know, especially in progressive music, it can get sterilized, right? It gets overly proggy, too heady, too mathy, and it almost like the soul gets gutted out of it. It's like it's, it's now you're just in thinking head. It's like, oh, it's which is kind of cool and exciting sometimes. But I mean, I would say even a band like Yes would touch into like as profound and deep as their stuff was on all levels they also sometimes got so nerdy and heady you know what i mean it was like super intellectual right but it is i guess it's the dance of kind of straddling all those lines and but i feel like i always felt like i never was good enough like i never felt like i always felt like i was never you know, and I'll, I'm just being really honest, like I never felt like that, that guitar player that was like the chops for days and could do everything. And I mean, I found my own weird form of this pocket, of this thing and this way to express it. And it became this sound. And then it kind of just like turned into something, but it was never like where I felt like, yeah, I'm this sick guitar player that's got fucking, because there's, I mean, especially these days, you know, been on YouTube, there's like eight-year-olds in Japan studying. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's kind of always been that. I think maybe now we're just, maybe the, they're learning quicker because they have YouTube. And it's like, so the, if you have that right mind at a young age and you have YouTube at your disposal, it's like the whole encyclopedia is in front of you and you can just, so they're accelerating. It's more advanced at a young age. I mean, that's what it seems to be because it's ridiculous. The skills out there now, it's kind of standard has gotten so high, right? In yes. Metal, too. It's, 
100%. You're right. That bar has been just, you know, just when you think it's it's pretty high, like you said, you know, you turn on, it's like a TikTok video of like an eight-year-old, like sweet picking these arpeggios and they're like, you know, having snacks and they're just chilling. <laughs> goldfish. They're just, oh, okay. Yeah. And I think it's like, that's the trick for, for those kinds of artists and musicians, because some of them have such finesse and ease at such a young age is to cultivate the expression where they have something to say. And mm. as you know, Technique means nothing if you don't have anything to say, but you can say a lot without technique, you know, and like that's the bottom line is that the expression of the creativity is way more important and always trumps the, the technique itself. And, you know, it's really just a tool to have more vocabulary. Like Keith Jarrett would say that he's like, I just practice all this technique stuff so that I can have at my disposal when I'm improvising ever as much as possible so he could just whatever is coming through he can access it that's the only reason why he wanted to have technique and i was like wow that's such a profound way to say what's why you're doing this because you just want to be have the whole range of the vocabulary at your disposal to just access whatever it is you're transmitting without any limitation and that dude was such a boss sick like player that he got to make you know have these moments in in history as a pianist you know like cone concert and stuff like that that are just like historical documents of like pure improvisation that are so trans or like a you know or a, a charlie parker or a john coltrane i mean look at, I mean, or just, or Holdsworth even, like analyzing how, what's going on. It's just like, they're just, they weren't thinking, man. But, no. you know, but they had, they did a lot of thinking to get to that point where they were freed of the thinking, right? It's, and that's a lot of the Zen cones, you know, it's like the riddle. You have to like break through the fucking, that's riddle to see through. And... It's a lot of just staring at a wall until the <laughs> wall. <laughs> There's a lot of those stories. You know, there was a book called Three Pillars of Zen that one of my early guitar teachers turned me on to. And it's stories of Westerners, like in the 60s and 70s, I think that went to this guy, Suzuki Roshi, some Zen teacher that was in San Francisco and then ended up in back in Japan, a lot of these like school teachers and lay people from the West were going to his ashram to just wake up. And a lot of the stories, these people that have these moments where they have this awakening, they just go burst out into laughter. They just start giggling. And it's like you start realizing like it's the, the, the cosmic joke where you see through, you're taking it so seriously, this whole thing. <laughs> like, wait, no, it's not that serious. Like, and we've been doing this and punching ourselves, being so hard on ourselves. So it's beautiful to kind of read about those moments. And a lot of us have them in abbreviated versions of it on psychedelics, you know, where you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, the giggles on mushrooms, you know. Or, I mean, it's. Those little moments. Yeah, you touch it, you know. And it, and it makes me just think about how, uh, 
you know, we're obviously a lot of old texts, you know, we're trying to describe some of these things, you know, how to tap into this, you know, this consciousness and this energy that is all around us at all times within us, part of us, everything, you know, and, and how, you know, I, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, you know, some of these conversations that folks are now having just in regular everyday conversations at a cafe wouldn't be having 10, 20 years ago. And now folks are a lot more open to things, you know, folks, folks are now okay with talking about, you know, extraterrestrial contact. Like yeah. it took long enough. <laughs> yeah, we had to break through the whole taboo thing that Hollywood built up and there's still that element, man. There's still a taboo thing. There's still a lot of people that just have weird, like they think it's, it's a, if you're talking about it, you're a crazy person still. There's still people that believe that, you know, that are still kind of brainwashed. Th those same people that think that, you know, LSD is going to fry your brain. You know, it's like it's this programming that's happened culturally. And but you're right. We've come a long way because those conversations are happening more and more. And. It's taken the technology. This is for better or worse has been part of the vehicle for that. It's podcasts and the, just the, the accessibility of all this information has created this playground for all of us to kind of collectively. So it's, I mean, that's why I think especially a lot of younger people are in some ways, some, some would argue they're being robbed of their childhoods because they don't have that protection anymore, the filter, but mm. they're also accelerating in a different way. Their consciousness, their maturing, have to kind of trust that this is coming in as it needs to. It's part of, but, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of people, you know, it's a delicate space, right? The AI discussion and right. that's going and, I don't think there's any stopping this train, though, man. <laughs> Dude, we're going to just, it's going to be the Wild West for a while, and we're just going to have to make mistakes and learn, and who knows, maybe we'll be in, maybe we'll become cyborgs. I mean, maybe. You know? I mean, I've heard in weird, you know, cultures, like, you know, a lot of my underground scenes like that we've already started shipping kids like they're putting Whoa. yeah i mean maybe it's already happening you know maybe there are reptilians in the government i don't you know it's like there's a lot of layers to this there's, it's it, it gets deep yeah <laughs> and i'm always like touching it you know it's like mm. i mean we when we start to get think we understand reality Almost start to kind of put it in this box, and it's <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Start to like get too sciency about it, and it's like, no, careful, careful, because it is actually really scientific, and because of that, it's mind-blowingly infinite and expansive. It's like the true nature of this, the science of it, is so profound. I feel like quantum physics is starting to open that conversation in the science the more conservative science circles like yeah. the reality of us being cellular and atoms and you know built of like that we're not actually solid and you know because the yogis have been saying this forever <laughs> we have to the western mind has to approach it with the science 
And that's, that's that putting it in the box so we can in the box. Yeah. I need to, I need to put it in a box so I can understand it. Yeah. And you know, and that's, it's so fascinating. And art, I mean, they yes. were in a box forever. And it was like, wait, maybe we don't fit in. We don't fit in. We're not part of anyone's box. Like we're, and that's okay. Like stop trying to put us in the box. But this is the categorizing, the way that our minds work. It's a way of trying to understand it, maybe to control it or something. Like put it in systemics, you know, the manuals, like we have to explain everything very, but you know, what's fascinating is there's volumes and volumes of texts in a lot of these monasteries that break down how the mind works. And, and a lot of those ancient Tibetan monasteries, they're fucking breaking that shit down, the layers and layers of mind. And it's so scientific, you know, but the way that they got there maybe wasn't the traditional Western model of how we think we're supposed to get there. We have, it came from some more ancient knowing, maybe a more ancient civilization like that they're connected to that is part of our past as well. Right. Right. And that's, and that's another fascinating topic of just like, you know, unlocking parts of our DNA and, you know, what the what's and the why's and the, you know, so deep. I love it. it you know. Well, dude, it's like, it's funny because I get, I love how that we're having this conversation because this is really all I'm interested in talking about. <laughs> yes. I mean, really, it's like, I just want to get into this stuff with everybody, you know? Yes. I mean, and like, how are, how are you, you know, yeah. <laughs> are you okay? What's going on in your life? You know, cause there's always that, that we have to kind of, we're working with our life situation and sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's uncomfortable and and that's, that can be, it can be overwhelming and it can, like I spent many years just enclosed in a very tight space, feeling the weight of what depression was like, you know, very narrow, very, the walls are closing in and isolating and yeah. And I can touch it all the time. I'm right there. You know, it's like I made friends with it. It's. And the grief. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's something that's, it's always there and it's. accepting that it's it's always with us or around yeah. us you know and uh, yeah and it's becoming it's part of it becomes part of our dna fabric it's just how we need it maybe and potentially work with it to provide some healing and you know i was telling this to to Aol when i did his podcast like a while back that i had this moment of complete nihilism 
you know, um, when I lost my bandmates, like really it was like the kind of culmination of the 2020 state of the collective world and all of that as an empathic person absorbing what was going on collectively, just everyone in a state of trauma, I guess, like, but you know, the gift of it was they had to kind of retreat inward because we couldn't, although we were going to the internet, obviously too. Um, but I had this moment where I thought, and I said this, and I'm going to repeat it. It was like where I suddenly felt like I had permission to be completely at the highest state of abandonment with reality, where I could just let everything go and I didn't care. And it was interesting, the conversations I was having with people at that time, I was just like, the people-pleasing person in me, the person that's always trying to make somebody feel comfortable, and it was gone. It was just like I was just in this direct state of just raw like and it took losing people to kind of get gutted in that way where you just i met reality in the most direct way possible it was just no bullshit do you know what i mean you're just like here we are man fucking you know fucking okay because i can barely but i also the nihilism like the self-destructive part of me like oh now i can now i can overdose on drugs and take my own life, you know, or do something really destructive. And I, you know, I entertain those things. I like entertain this idea of like, maybe this is my way, my, my way to go, my, my turn, you know, like, and it was good to touch that, you know, and then, and then I had to get past that. It was realizing like, Oh wait, like, we're all in this together. We all represent different aspects of each other. And I don't have to, <laughs> I don't have to tell that story in that way. I can, I can meet it in a different way. <laughs> and, but yeah, we've, I'm grateful for having a spiritual practice and having meditation in my life and journaling and, doing inner work because I think that really gave me an opportunity to kind of get some perspective on what was going on rather than totally self-identifying and being swallowed by it as its own little story. You know, the ego, the story of, and just kind of stepping out and getting past that, that whole aspect that can feel so personal and it is, but at the same time, it isn't right. It's so, yeah, it's it's hard to even get all this into words. <laughs> yeah, because I think some of those, and I can identify a lot of these feelings and these emotions are just like, they're firsts and it's indescribable. Like there is no language in, in human form or anything that I can think of that could fully express how that grief feels. All I can do is just know that I feel it and what it does to me internally. And so I, I have that choice on what I do with that energy. And, um, and, and that's, I think that's that transmutation, right? That alchemical work of like, let me, let me move this. Let me shift this because it's, I know what it feels like and how it's consuming me and I'm, everything's closing in and I'm having these dark thoughts. Where's the lesson in this? What can I do with this energy? How can I make things better? Or how can I help somebody else? 
I guess that's kind of where my, my heart and my mind go. Yeah. Yeah. Move the energy because it's stuckness. A lot of it is very stuck. And, and sometimes it's like, cause I think I worked through one breakup, you know, of, of an intimate relationship uh, with yoga. Like I literally was like pushed myself where I was doing a practice every day, a really kind of aggressive Hatha practice. And it, I like worked through the grief of the loss of the relationship through my body and it worked, you know, it was like I used, and it was, it got the energy moving again. It was like just an added, almost be a physical embodiment of just stretching and opening and just kind of getting to a place where I could breathe and take deep breaths and, but yeah, it's, it is all those things, like whatever we can do to kind of, or show up for somebody else, like the reference point of like showing up for somebody else who's in hardship and, and, you know, it is, it's like, if we learn how to kind of meet that in ourselves, we can, we can do it for others, right? We can properly show up for others if we know how to walk through that door and that's those are the best friends the ones that have walked through it themselves and can hold space for for us when we're walking through it and yeah there's nothing like experience as a teacher that's mm -hmm. like because it's you know i went through my 20s thinking i understood how the world works you know and I could intellectualize it, right? It was like, and I had some experience from my childhood and everything, but I definitely was still intellectualizing how I understood things and thought I could enter the mind having read enough books. And it was like, no, it took like the annihilation in the 30s and the 40s where <laughs> just life fucking just gives you everything it's got, man. And then you're just like, wow, okay. The teacher is the experience. It's not. The books can't do it anymore. <laughs> Only go so far. Our mind can take us so far with thinking we got a hold of this situation. And eventually just you know, explodes. And that's where the learning, you know what I mean? It's like letting go. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. And it, we, we just hold on for dear life. We're holding on to everything. Our white knuckle just. Oh, dude. <laughs> Why? <laughs> no. Because it's, it's a fight for our life. We believe our very own existence is predicated on this concept of how we've understood how reality works and how we've identified with our experience of reality. So until we can kind of let go of that, it's like, it really is a, a fight for life for, this is the ego's battle. It's the battle of like, it really, it feels like that. It's, you know, and it's it, that death, that, that, that dying is, that's where real, that's where real freedom, that's the freedom. That's where you're, Finally free. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to, you know, and I, I should, shouldn't say I'm trying. I am letting go, you know, 
it's a moment to moment process of letting go. And some days I'm better at it than others. I hear that one. You know what I mean? It's sometimes I'm still bite the hook once in a while. And it's like, but I've got good tools and, you know, working with, with trauma and stuff and lifelines and ways to work with it where I can, and I found a lot of it is learning how to regulate the nervous system when you're straddling, I'm going to use first person when I'm straddling those edges, how to get my nervous system to a place of regulation again, where I, have, I feel like I'm seeing things clearly rather than caught up in whatever it is that's that energy, that ancestral trauma that's showing up and saying, hey, you know, you're supposed to feel like hell today. <laughs> you're supposed to be sad. But then again, honoring that, like honoring some days, I just, it's okay that I'm going to move at a half speed and maybe cry a lot. And maybe I just need to reach out to some friends and just take care of myself a little and just treat, honor the kid that's in pain and accept that and love it and have some gentleness towards that instead of trying to think it has to change or move it's be with it make friends with it you know that's that's where the change happens is mm. giving it a big old hug <laughs> it's so true and I, I i've gone through periods of time where i know i know myself now you know i'll be 43 in uh, just a couple of days and uh Ooh, cool. yeah, and i just I'm, yeah. I'm sorry no. Are you Leo? Uh Virgo. Oh, Virgo, you're right on the cusp, right? Yeah. Yep. And uh yeah, it's 27th of August. Oh, nice. Yeah. Awesome. It's and I'm at that point, you know, where I I know when I need a good cry. I know it's just like I'm gonna just I'm gonna hang out, I'm gonna just I'm gonna be, I'm gonna breathe, I'm gonna let it just wash over me, I'm gonna cry, I'm gonna feel so much better. And, and I do, I truly do. After I do that, it's like, ah, oh, okay. I've got this. I've got this. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's those days where it's, I don't necessarily bounce back right away and it's okay. And I, I you know, yeah. I'm more patient with myself now than I used to be. Yeah. I mean, it's, I'm finding like, even this idea of like, the bounce back it's like not even trying to bounce back just hanging out in the complete like falling apartness and just like like it's this you know it's again one of these quotes that's well known but i'm going to say it again it's a chug yang trumpa quote and the quote is the bad news is you're falling through the air no parachute the good news is there's no ground and the idea is that there never is ground. We're in a free fall the whole time if we're really paying attention. And to just find some ease knowing that all the time, to be in that state of that free fall, where we're just, you never quite land, because everything else is almost an attempt to deal with the anxiety of trying to kind of hold on. Right. So just to breathe into that free fall, to not try and get a hold of this, to let really just let go 
and find ease in that without the parachute. Just there's, but there's no ground. So you're just, you're just in a free fall. Maybe you're floating. Maybe it's a little more buoyant. There's less gravity, you know, over time. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a good place to, to be, you know, to connect with others in that way. Cause that's where we really all are all the time. We're paying attention. I love that. It's so true. It's uh, one of the many things that I, I love about this, you know, this, this existence and like, you know, in those days where you're feeling, or at least for me and my first person feeling like, okay, this is good. You know, this is fun. This, this food tastes wonderful it tastes amazing and you know and it's nourishing me and uh you know that interconnectedness to everything and then when you have those moments to just you know be still and you know and that, that's i think that's that's the the best that's just the best part of this life so yeah, <laughs> yeah that free fall i love that <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, there is something very kind of, I don't know, it, for me, it, it, uh, it puts me at ease knowing that, that first off, that reminder, and I, I always use this as an entry point too, when I have those old traumas reappear is I remind myself that a lot of other people are feeling this right now too. And it kind of connects me. It's like a web point of connection. So it's like, instead of this isolated space that I used to go into now, it's like, oh wait, no, this is what depression feels like. This is what sadness feels like. We're all in on this. We're all, we all know this. And so it's a way of like connecting with the collective in a sense. And it gets, gets out it gets me out of this me thing aspect it's like oh yeah okay that's what that person was feeling that day when they were trying to express this to me or this it's just like it you know i mean this is really the thing it's like we're trying to just like expand our heart as far open as possible and realize that there's enough room there kind of it doesn't get full. It actually just keeps expanding and you can never, there's no ends. There's no boundaries. It's kind of like a universe in itself. It's the metaphor for a universe. So it's this boundless space, but we have to massage it to kind of keep opening it, right? Opening the muscle, <laughs> getting it to loosen up and hold more space and hold more fucking love, you know, more, the, the root of this whole thing. <laughs> yeah. So beautiful. Oh, I love that. Oh, that is so. I feel like you're, you know, I mean, your mom thing, you, you starting the conversation with that. She's like, that's, that's become the whole conversation, right? I mean, Truthfully. Is, we're just, we're going into the heart now, man. You know, mm -hmm. the mother. Yeah. Yep. That's, uh, it's, 
it is truly the root of everything. And that's ever since I was a kid, she would always, always taught me that love was everything. Love is everything. And, and I'm so grateful for that because I, I carry that with me every single day. And, you know, I, it, especially in this past year and a half, you know, it's, I think it's, it's impacted me on a deeper level because now I, I've, I think I, I try to quantify it before, whereas now I'm just being with it. And I understand it's a state of becoming, it's like a breath. It's not this concrete block. It's, it's breath, it's becoming, and it's growing and it's moving. And, and now I have this, I feel like I have a, a deeper understanding of what she was trying to instill within me and, and tell me on a deeper level. At least that's, that's how real. I feel. Yeah, how we absorb information over time, depending on our own life experience. Like I had books I read as a kid that I didn't get because I was too young. And then the reread years later and it's like, oh, now I get that. Now I get that chapter or, you know. Right. It's like, depending on, again, we can only meet these things depending on our own experience. And so it's it's kind of interesting in that way that all the information we're absorbing through a lifetime and almost like it, it's integrated in different ways over the passage of our lives, you know, depending on how much further we're opening and able to reflect and right. And so the lessons of even the parent and stuff often it's, I mean, and, and I always say the parent, it could be a best friend. It could be somebody who was, played a role as a mentor, as a figure in, in one's life, because it's, you know, traditional parents, it's, it could be anything, you know, for everybody. Everybody has a different version of that. Right. But, um, cause I had people in my childhood that were parental type figures that weren't, you know, that kind of played the role, but they were just one, another aspect of it. They held a certain space that maybe my physical parents couldn't or something, you know? So there's all these, like you know they say it takes a village and really for many of us it is a village of people that are in our lives that kind of play different plant different seeds and mm. i love that because then it gives me that sense of almost like we're this walking mosaic of yeah. influence and in, in all those seeds that are planted that you know they will grow and uh will grow yeah and they get expressed somehow through whatever we're doing in our life and through, through music and work. Mm -hmm. it's interesting how some songs, you know, I've had a lot of, like a lot of songs I have that I've written that I like a lot of cynic records and everything. I really, it's like the songs exist, like they've always kind of existed. They almost get put into this like, you know, like archival kind of thing. And then when it's time to make a record, they kind of pop up and it's like the ones that are ready. And it could be something related to something from so long ago that just wasn't fully integrated yet because of where I am now. And then it's like, okay, now this thing is ready to be finished or get completed and turned into a recorded work. Like the demo was just that early seed of, right? And so a lot of the creative process I found, it's kind of encyclical where it kind of has this early origin and then it might reappear and then 
but the songs themselves tell you when they're ready. It's like you almost just make room for it, and then it just shows up. It's like, oh yeah, okay, this one, this one, it's time for this one to do its thing. You know, it's fascinating how impersonal that can be and personal at once. Again, the paradox of this whole thing. Is, Has there ever been a maybe a song that you've written that like you've maybe re-listened to and it's inspired you and given you a, a whole different feeling and a whole different sense from where you were when you wrote it? Oh yeah. I mean I mean I'll give you an example, a song from Cynic's Carbon-Based Anatomy, the song Box Up My Bones. That song, um, it had this root of an old demo. Like was like just me on like acoustic guitar playing this like verse part and and I had this like pre-chorusy thing. I didn't have the chorus, but I had these two main sections that had this really pure essence. And I had that for years before that song. And then the song kind of, you know, carbon that album happened in a month. It was one of these things where we were in this pressure cooker environment. Uh, and I'll speak for myself. I was actively involved in the ayahuasca community in LA. I still am, but it was really like the early years of it where I was deep in doing a lot of medicine and in ceremony. So I was kind of in this like touching into those spaces, a lot of ego death and those like just a lot of death themes, really. And there was a patient I had who I was working with through this hospice organization, who a unique person in that, his name was Chester, that he brought me in. Like he, we kind of had a soul connection and he says, you're going to take this journey with me. And he took me to the end of his life, you know, where I was holding his hand as he took his last breath. And I had these like months with him, a summer basically, where we got to kind of, be with each other. And it was so, when I look back at what an honor it was that he pulled me in through that journey, but then it was, so it was, that was going on the, the, um, the ayahuasca stuff. And then we were in this like crazy music business legal battle with an ex manager. It was a fucking mess. And it was so stressful. Sean Reiner and I were living together actually in this house in Echo Park, this neighborhood in LA. And so we had this like container of all this stuff kind of just like a fucking big pot of like, you know, alchemizing white blue stuff. It was, and had mud, it had light, it had sparks of heart. It was just like, and this manager, this newer manager we had at the time was like, why don't you just make an EP? Just make, just make, make a record, make something. And I was like, okay, fucking, because it's like, didn't know what to do with all this stuff that was happening. And I think that was his intuitive awareness. This guy, Andy Carp, he just, I think he really had an insight there to kind of say, put all this energy into your work right now. You're going, you're working through a lot of shit. So I did. And in a month, that record just went, and it was like, bam, we like recorded it and it's done. And and it wasn't until years later, looking back, that it was like, wow, look at that weird thing that happened. It was like a 
popped out of a time and place that could never be recreated. And that song in particular held so many things and it kind of embodied, it was like the heart of the record in a sense. And it had this ancient root of the seedling. And then this whole like modern thing about where I was meeting the trauma, meeting the fear, meeting everything I was working through and how I could push through it. And, you know, the, the lyric in the chorus of Box My Bones is, um, you know, when I feel scared, I declare I have everything I need. It's like that knowing that I have everything I need and it's okay wherever I am that there isn't something else that's going to replenish or make this better. It's all here and just accepting where I am, you know, and that sense of surrender, that was like the heart of that record, you know, and that song. And so that's, that's an example of one of those moments for sure. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Oh, yeah, thanks for asking. You just kind of brought up with something that didn't, I never really thought about it in that way, like explaining it. So it's interesting to kind of get it. We're always telling these things over and over in new ways, depending on right who we're meeting. And so thank you for holding space as my mirror in this conversation. And I can do the same for you, you know? <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. This is, this has been wonderful. I've enjoyed every, every moment of this. So. Thank you for your time and your space as well, too. Yeah. It means a lot. You have, uh, was it a retreat in Bali coming up? That you Yeah. So my friend Jay Cobrin, he's a painter who has been in, I've been in touch with him for many years. He, he's been, he was emailing me back in the day. Like he was kind of, uh, when he was really young, actually, he might have even been in his late teens, but He's like really been deep in the visionary arts path, like you know, Venosa School, Martina, all those artists, Alex Gray, I think he went and did some of Alex's workshops and schools and stuff. And, and he's really come into a, his own voice and has, makes beautiful art. And, um, and he's been really good about integrating where art, you know, where the creative path like merges with like, you know, different teachings really kind of like he took the artist's way. I don't know if you know that book, but he took that as like a program and was teaching it. And I did a guest teaching stuff on it a couple of those um, times that he did that program with the students. And so now he's organizing like a workshop. He's deep into like magic, you know, and the use of magic and working with the sigils and all this, the symbolism and all the practices and where that intersects with the creative process. And um, so he's doing this retreat in Bali. It's for two weeks. I think it's December 7th through the 21st. And he's got a bunch of different, very cool teachers that each have a different kind of unique perspective. A lot of, and um, so, yeah, it's it'll be interesting. It's kind of, I'm excited to get in there with a beginner mind and meet this process of like merging sound with, a lot of these visualization practices, because I think a lot of the students are more visually inclined. They're painters and illustrators for the most part. It's not mostly musicians. It's mostly people in the visual realm. So I was like thinking how I can merge that with the sound stuff and like 
how where they meet and how to do practices. It's you know, it's I'm thinking about it every day. So it's interesting you brought it up because it's one of those things where it's like I get very excited thinking about how I can participate and and I've had a lot of ideas about doing these kinds of things more in the music side, like for young guitar players or something, or people trying to kind of find where their spiritual practice meets with their creative process and how to kind of, because we're all trying to point to the truth. This is the whole point of art. It's like, you're just trying to touch the unknowable and point at it. It's like, this is what we're all, you know, we're all like the things that you can't say. It's like, you're, you know, so it's like, Oh, is there ways to kind of massage that? And I think there are, I think there's practical ways to, to get in there and to get better at accessing that state. I mean, for some people it's easier than others, but it's, it is like anything else. It's a practice, you know? And like people will say, you know, like, oh, I don't like to also, I'll reference something in astrology and they're like, I don't believe in astrology. And I'll say, I don't believe in astrology either. I practice it. It's not a belief system. Right. <laughs> Meditation is not a belief system. It's a practice, you know. Yoga is a practice. It's like you got to take it out of the religion box or like this belief box and conceptual box and think, no, it's more about experiencing it directly and then arriving at our own. Like even the Buddha himself said that, don't believe a word I say until you've arrived at this on your own terms through your own research and that's really kind of the goal here is like so if you can introduce some different practices and entry points to for people to kind of access these states it's i mean that's funny about all this stuff is and you probably know this it's like maybe doing the podcast now it's like we become the student all over again it's like we're it's like I'm psyched because I'm the really the student here that's just sharing what I've learned to other students, but it's like I'm learning just as much as it's an interactive collective exchange. I don't claim to know anything. And it's you know, it's that's that real the real point here is that we're all just like kind of in on this. There's no, there's no teacher, there's no we're all reflecting and every situation is is different in that sense like where you'll meet it and how the thing how the, the situation can unfold and even a creative process i'll just add this because you're reminding me of something which is when i was in college like and i never finished college but i had various iterations of times in college and one time the early years when i was really cynic was active and we were studying jazz and all this stuff and i was in this big band and i had auditioned this guy named Giorgini. he was like the infamous tough big band uh band leader guy to get in his band was like a thing and it was like he was just just tough classic italian like ball buster like hard music teacher you know very kind of intimidating and um and I was so scared. And I remember my teacher encouraging me, my guitar teacher, Dave, like, just audition, man. You got it. You're good, dude. You know. And so I went in and he had me solo over something and play, read this chart, whatever, just to see if I could start doing gigs with this big band. 
And I felt, so, I was so nervous, you know, so terrified. I remember literally shaking, like my hand was like, you know, but I was like, I did the best I could and, and I got in, you know, and then once I got in and I got more confident and we started to do gigs and stuff, I was realizing, and this was like the, something that someone had said to me, it's like the curse of overstudying and over preparing is that you actually, now it's working against you because you feel so insecure you know, you know too much. You don't have that, like, you know, it's like it keeps, it's kept me in this state of feeling like I can't, I don't know enough. And I, I feel eternally insecure because I realize how profoundly deep this is. At the same time, I'm so prepared that I'm, I'm cool. It's fine. I got what it takes. I can do this. I can meet this in my own way. And constantly reminding myself that. Like there's no, there's no way to really prepare for any of this. You know, I saw Jim Perry, man. I worked with him on a children's book. I saw that. And dude, he talk about somebody who meets everything in the moment with absolute, absolute presence and no preparation. Like, granted, he's an anomalous being with insane, like you know, just empathic nature who can absorb energy and mirror it back to you, like the way that he can those embody people and stuff you know all that shape-shifting but he um but he really is like i remember when we went to you know had this all the sound design stuff for the children's book and it's like we need the sound of a boat engine and the wind and the leaves rustling and like you know dolphins and this sound it was just like i had like a list of like you know hundred things and i was going through like archival sound libraries trying to kind of sound design it. And he's like, when I went to tell him and show him the list, he's like, no, I, I want to do this. And I was like, like, yeah, yeah, let's do it. And it's like, you just, we got in the studio, put him in front of the mic. Like this was in the studio. And he goes through the list and starts embodying each sound with his mouth, like in the moment. And it was like no preparation, just saw it. And it's like, complete trust that he had what it takes to just show up, show up for what was in front of him and to meet it. And we always have what it takes. This is the thing we, we all have what it takes. <laughs> you know what I mean, man? A hundred percent. Oh, <laughs> yes. We all have what it takes. We all have what it takes. So I find myself scrambling, writing down, making notes, thinking of all these ideas, preparing for this retreat. And of course, I'll come in over prepared. <laughs> the reality is I'll get there and I'm going to throw it all out the window and it's going to happen. And, but this is, you know, this is how it works, right? Mm -hmm. You got to get to the point where you get past preparation and you just show up and trust that you have it, that you've done, done the work. And now is your opportunity to, to put it at work and to, and to kind of, and that was the thing I got to that point in that big band where I was like, okay, yeah, I can do this. You know, I can, I can play like this and, and I had those moments in television music doing 
stuff where it was soundalikes and doing soundalike libraries where it was like, oh yeah, I can do this. You know, it's like get little like nudges of feeling more secure <laughs> <laughs> or feeling like you can fake it better, I guess, or something, you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, there's never, I think the most authentic place where we meet all this is just where it's just the most naked and real. And there's no pretense and no show and no just being completely vulnerable and real with where we are with all of it and meeting it that way is, that feels like the most, that's the only place I can really, you know what I mean, where it makes sense. Other Everything else is just a showboating nonsense. Well put, well articulated. We all have what it takes. By the way, again, recently, I don't know if you know this book. Oh, yeah. All right. I do not own a copy of it, but okay. By the way, this look at this bookmark. This is Oh, what is that? You see, it's a little ET. Oh, whoa. 3D thing. You know? Fantastic. I love that. Yeah, it's like a little 3D ET bookmark. It's so cool. I love it. This is like an old school technology, lenticulars, you know, where they could print in 3D. But I feel like part of me is like, fuck, I want to make like an album cover with this. Probably someone did it, you know, like <laughs> some kind of envisioning of like, because it's just so rad, you know. But this book is so deep, dude. It's so profound. Wow. You know. It just gets into all the all the you know the the whole geometry stuff you know and just mm-hmm. the solid and the roots of the, where the fruit of life goes to the seed of life and combining you know everything leading to Metatron's cube and yes so deep and and then the heart math of like the DNA molecule which is like I don't know if you know Dan Winter's stuff but all that's fucking man he got into this whole thing. And what's fascinating is a lot of that is related to the tetrahedron. And the tetrahedron was adopted by, for example, its roots are ancient in Vedic culture, in Tibetan culture. You'll see the, the in 2D form, it looks like a six-pointed star, you know, but it's actually like eight. You know, it's, like, it's like a 3D shape. And, um, but, you know, even, even the Jews adopted it as the symbol, the Star of David. And it, what it represents in all these ancient teachings is the heart chakra. It's the math of the heart, the vehicle, the mark of a vehicle. So it's so deep, the science of it. You can become a scholar in this stuff, and we have them. The Dan Winters and the Zumbala Mokizadets, they've written books about this stuff. It's, I just, I feel like this is another, all this stuff, I feel like I could study this the rest of my life, and just it's endlessly fascinating and deep, right? And where you connect the dots and, you know, and yeah, where it meets love and there's the tree of life and there's a whole even drawing of the tree of life on Atlantis. Like, mm. showed it, it kind of was in the geometry of Atlantis. It's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, fascinating. It's a, absolutely the stuff that I absolutely love too. I mean, I even, are you familiar with David Ariel uh, for yeah. Kabbalah? So I, oh wow, 
Yeah, yeah, I know that book, but I've never read that. Wow. This one's this one's a great read. Yeah. And uh so that's the closest book I have to within reach anyway. So yeah, just you know, definitely with sacred geometry, Vedic texts, you know. So there's so much, like you said, like that interconnectedness. And I could relate when you were talking about like, you know, having the artwork for your album and you're trying to show all the interconnectedness and you're like well now i'm just going to subtract i don't need to do all those things it's right there like i love that yeah yeah i don't have to be so literal right it's like this is takes confidence to not be literal and but sometimes literal is in the wall is in the tapestry and because i think about like this most recent cynic album and it's not literal at all, but they're, the guitars, it's so dense. There's so many secret things. And hearing this playthrough song I did of Aurora instrumentally, it's like, wow, it's like a different song. Because now you, because the vocal's out, all these other things come forward. So it's like you hear these details in the guitars and, and other instruments, including bass and drums where it's like things emerge that you're just like wow i never heard that because i was listening to the vocal melody you know right. or kind of the melody kind of took precedence and this is interesting the holographic aspect of how we listen to music too it's like it can move and change and warren who mixed the record is really good about that like we did that with the growls it was like this we tried to do this my friend uh, max phelps did the vocals in there you know a lot of people were like it's, it sounds so subtle and quiet but what's interesting is the way that it was mixed it's like moving in a 3d space like constantly so at moments it's actually really present it almost could be on top of the the vocoder but then it kind of just drifts away and then it comes back in so everything's moving like that all the time so it's like depending on where you are in your life it, like the mix keeps evolving and stuff and i love that because it gives the mix some meat where it feels like it's it, it lives you yes. know it transcends like the, the space of like a stereo image that we're relegated to right Listen. that was one of the first things i noticed too when i listened to the album it was just this oscillation and it's just like yeah. it was just like it was moving, it was living and breathing sound and frequency. And I was like, there's something clearly different about this. And I love it. You know, couldn't quite put my finger on it at first. So by the third or fourth, listen, you, you, you know, you start picking up on these subtle nuances and it's like, ah, so. yeah, no, I love that too. With like Warren, I could say to him things like, like I remember certain riffs and certain guitar parts of songs. I was like trying to articulate what I was going for. And it was like, I could only express it in abstract concepts. I couldn't be like, cut 60 hertz and boost this. And like, I, could, I can't think that way when I'm in a creative process. It's, it just doesn't, my brain doesn't work that way. So I would say weird things. And he understood it, though, with the gift of that dynamic, right, where you have someone who you're working with in a creative capacity who's interpreting all these tracks and trying to make sense of it and turn it into this 2D image, essentially, or 3D image. And it's like when I can kind of say, I want it to be like this rather than this and and speak in weird geometrical, like I'll show them an image or something. It's like, should this is what it should sound like, you know? 
And that he could get that, you know, and that's a beautiful, rare element, I think, of a mixer because a lot of mixers are so technically inclined and so caught up in like mastering engineers. They're so like scientists in the realm of just, it's that fine line where it also can get over sterilized. And I've heard that in a lot of modern mixes with a lot of modern progressive music. It's, it's hyper mixed to where there's too much separation and it almost like feels like it's, it's like mixed too well. Like it's like, no, like it's, now I'm hearing everything too separated and it doesn't sound like one thing. Right. And that's a whole art form to get it to be one thing, you know, rather than like sterilized, perfectly separated, hyper EQ mixes, which is like impressive when you've got fucking 60 to 80 tracks and 20, 30 guitar tracks and layers. <laughs> but it's, it does, I don't know, it can get, yeah, it can get hyper sterile, right? It like, it's like we're still, at the end of the day, we're trying to create a sense of unity with all these instruments and this mm -hmm. sound that's expressing one thing. And you get too surgical with, with EQing this to death, it might, you might gut it. You might, you might start, it might lose its body, you know? And those imperfections that, you know, could be called imperfections, and those types of mixes become what makes it so special often. Those weird flaws, those, those errors, the, the things that are maybe too loud or too quiet. It's like, if it's done tastefully, it, it can be really special. And, you know, especially if it's, you're conscious of it, you know, it's pretty, a lot of those classic records have that. You can't put your finger on it. You know, it's like, oh, it has that mysterious thing that, Those tend to be the albums, in my opinion, that the more you listen, the more you discover, and they just keep growing, and they just, they're just, they're like vessels in time, and yeah. like, ah, oh, I love that. <laughs> like, what are you, um, I'm guessing you have a super eclectic palette, like, what did you grow up listening to? Mostly? Oh, God, what didn't I? Uh, so, with my mom, I mean, it was everything from soul, and R&B, and Elvis, and Bob Marley and the Whalers to, I mean, anything like Tom Jones. <laughs> so it was like this, I, you know, music was music, you know, and my mom loved to dance. So I in turn loved to dance and I loved music and rhythm. And I would pick up on all these different, you know, sounds that just moved me and I didn't know why and I wanted to play music. So you heard a lot. So like, Sounds like super eclectic, but also 80s stuff too. Did you grow up on? Yeah. A lot of 80s stuff, you know, yeah. even like new Dancing. wave. Dancing and yeah. Yeah. A lot of fun, a lot of fun stuff, late 70s stuff. Um, and then, and just like, you know, getting into things, even just like some of like, you know, bands like, you know, Creedence Clearwater and, you know, Pink yeah. Floyd and, and then bands like Yes and getting into some of that stuff because, you know, I had uncles that were into things or cousins. So it was yeah. just like this, like ever expanding world of music. So. Cool. Yeah. yeah. You ended up being familiar with the, the fringes, like bands like Cynic and stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know what I mean, because it's, to get down that road is so specific and, and weird, but it's like, so you, but you got into heavier music and rock and metal and stuff too. And yeah, right? 
Yeah, because my brother, you know, you know, he was into Black Sabbath and Ozzy and Metallica. So then that was that that path. And then it was Queensryche and, you know, kind of getting down there. It's like, okay, I like this and well, I like this and just yeah. ever expansive, you know, and like, then, then it's like, you think you know what metal is. And then it's like, oh, check this out. This is death metal or this is, you know, this is tech death metal. And this is, right. and you're like, what? All these different subgenres that I didn't know about. <laughs> Deep. And then the black metal world. I mean, right. There's, it's like its own, so many subs, you know? Right. Yes, I love it. It's all these expressions, you know, were so cool seeing it take all these forms. And and I remember some old interview. I can't remember like what year this was, but I think it was someone like in Morbid Angel. It might have been David Vincent or something, but he said something to the effect like, there are no rules in these subgenres that we're making. And this is the beauty of it is that we can do whatever we want and we're not confined. We're not, we're not in any box and we're, so it's like limitless, you know, realms of creative expression within these extreme art forms. And I was like, yeah, that's so cool. You know, it's true. It's because we find these weird extremities and then we're kind of finding niches within the extremities, you know, like the black metal, which is fascinating. The folk scene. Yes. So cool, you know? Oh. And merging like all these different, yeah. Indigenous and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? like what was that band? Wolves in the Throne Room, you know? Yes. Like kind of woods, but like Oregon, like a different vibe than like Norway. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Right. One little weird niche that was kind of part of their scene. Yeah. It's so fascinating how, you know, geographically, you know, the the nuances can change and the influence and then, you know, resurgence and. uh, Yeah. No, it was, I just went last week to see Deicide on their 30th anniversary of Legion tour. And, um, you know, like, I, you know, kind of knew those guys as a kid. Like I remember them being around the studio when we were making Death's Human and they were kind of, you know, around, they were like this Florida band. And, but I always think about the anomalous nature of all of these bands that came out of that particular region. Cause we were, we weren't part of that. We were the city kids from Miami. We were from like four hours, three, four hours South of that part of central Florida but that all these bands came out with really strong voices and sounds that were so distinct from each other. You think of death, morbid angel, obituary, deicide, like nocturnus. It was like just all these weird, there was a lot of bands that just kind of didn't sound like they all sounded like themselves. Atheist, of course, it was like, and it was like, what happened there? How did that happen? (laughs) Yeah. Like, so trippy, like, especially because the the kids in that region, too, they weren't from cities that were exposed to, like, like us, like, cultural environments of ethnicities. They were in these, like, pretty white, kind of almost, like, felt more Southern. I mean, those parts of Florida, especially back then, felt like the South, you Mm -hmm. know? So it's almost like, just, like, I mean, I'll put it bluntly, like, for us, we go up there and we're like, these guys are hicks. 
you're fucking chewing tobacco and you're like, you know, like and sometimes in a not cool way, like racist kind of shit where mm. it was oh, that's a bit gnarly. That ain't cool. Mm. You know, we were like, I'm a Cuban kid, brown skinned in Miami, you know, it's like I was from a different world. But at the same time, you know, you get to the root and they're like, no, there are good people. Like it's not, I think it's unconscious cultural things that came from time and place. But really, if you get to know them, they're actually not racist. Maybe some of them. <laughs> I'm not going to speak directly because I don't know. I only knew the ones I knew. But, um, but it was fascinating that this incredibly extreme art forms, these art forms were birthed out of those regions and they each were so unique. And I always wondered, it was like, what was it? Like, was it in the water? Was it like, what was it that produced same generation? Sweden had it going on too. They had their kind of weird, more different version of it. Like I was more fond of the Florida scene, I guess, because not only having been from there, but just, it felt more like, I don't know, there was just a different thing going on with the way that it was expressing itself. But I, I always wondered about that because I know there was a rebellious aspect because it was a lot of retirement communities there, elderly people, churches, like that's kind of a lot of that Central Florida was big on that, especially at that time. Right. Maybe they were just, it was a rebellion against the boredom of that constipated, elderly, static religion where you just felt and you know the the angst of youth like just going right do something different so push these edgy fucking extreme art forms which were fucking sick you know so sick like but yeah i always i'm always so curious about like and i'm i wonder if there's even like you know scientific philosophical explanations of like how how those things happen, those weird pockets of like emerging creative kind of explosions. Like you think of like Dadaism in Berlin or something weird, like creative movements that just happen in like a period. And maybe sometimes it's response to all, you know, outer events, the war, whatever, whatever was going on, World War II stuff. But I think in, in Florida, maybe it was related to, cause there was a lot of the satanic, just rebellious because of all of the retirements. But, you know, I'm just always curious about the layers of that. Like, where does this shit come from? <laughs> Cause and effect. Yeah, because it was a lot of bands. There was a real scene and everybody was writing their own, like, voice. And, and you know, someone like Monty Connor shows up from Roadrunner and just starts signing all these different, like, it's parts of that, like, it was really cool to see that, um, you know, that he had the insight to kind of spot these. And there was obviously different bursts of it that were popping out in other places around the world, but it was just curious that pocket, you know, in the late eighties, early nineties in Florida it was so trippy, you know, how I just remember having those moments. I remember being specifically, and I've told this story before with Chuck Schuldiner at a party, it was like at a barn, fucking barn. <laughs> and it was like every extreme band was playing, you know, like DSI were still Amon and Obituary were still Executioner. I mean, they were kids, you know, and 
I remember Glenn fucking kicking over Virgin Mary statues from the top of the stage was really high. And I was there with Chuck, you know, Chuck had just put out spiritual healing and we were just hanging out. And I remember thinking like in that moment, cause every band of the scene was there and it was just like, wow, this is so trippy. Like how there's this real scene and it was a real moment in you know, order. It felt like there was a collective community and it was so fringy and so extreme, <laughs> but very cool and affirming to have those moments, especially when you're so outside, you know, for us, we were so outside and felt so weird as artists and like, didn't feel connected to anybody other than these little moments of like, Oh yeah, there's other freaks like us <laughs> shit, you know, making weird music. And, but I don't even think we even understood it. We were just showing up for a process, you know, trying to get, trying to process and capture and communicate something that even we didn't perhaps understand. It was just coming through, you know, it's like so young, I mean, early twenties, late teens, you know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. All that yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's amazing how it just I died at 34, you know, he was, he was 34 years old. People don't realize that. Like, yeah. He, he was, he was a kid. Yeah. You've, uh, you've had uh, <clears throat> so many different experiences in, uh, you know, life, music, and uh, just culturally, aesthetically. Like, there's so much, you know, and I, you express it in your, in your art, and uh, it's so unique. And... Uh, Thank you for, for sharing. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, George. I appreciate you reaching out and being here and having a moment with you. Right on. Well, yeah. I, it's one of those things where it just, it makes sense. <laughs> it just, it, oh, God. thank you for, I really, glad we had a, let's do it again sometime. Oh, I would love that. This has been wonderful. Um, thank you so much. Uh, where, where can folks find you on the internet? Um, you know, the usual channels. Um, I think the Instagram and Cynic has a Facebook. My Facebook isn't active right now because I, apparently I don't exist to them. I got, they literally froze my account said I had to prove my identity. Oh. This is a funny metaphor. I uploaded my passport, my driver's license, a state ID thing, and they're like, "Not good enough." And I'm like, "Okay, I guess, I guess I don't exist." <laughs> what? I know. So it's like a verified account kind of thing. So it just came out of nowhere, where it suddenly was like, "It's been two months where I can't post anything on my personal account." Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm, we'll see. A part of me is just like, maybe it's time to shut that one down and just keep it cynic, you know, keep simplify it. But, um, yeah, we have all, all the socials, you know, cynic online, um, generally is the, the name for the sites. And I think that's about it. Um, yeah, and just my own name, but, um, hmm. yeah. And in the ether. And in the <laughs> 
Right. And, and can folks still uh, register for that retreat in Bali in December? Is there? Yeah, actually, um, you know, that's a good question. I don't know. Like that's, I, I'm not sure about that. Um, we should look that up and double check, but okay. um, yeah, it might be closed now. I have to double check. I know we do offering something. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure. Oh, um, no sweat. And so, but, so wait, you're JC, right? Yeah, I'm Jay. And George is my my good friend and producer. Yeah. And sure for Jason? It is. Cool. Yeah. Uh, goes back to my mom again. So <laughs> when, when my brother was born, uh, you know, he came out and was, was a boy. She realized, she remembered how she carried him six years later. I'm coming around and she was convinced. She's like, Oh, it's a girl. Cause back then they didn't really get the sex. It was just like, whatever. I just, I'm, I'm going to ride it out and it's going to be a surprise. She was totally convinced that was going to be a girl. And she had a different name picked out. And then when I was born, they said, okay, well, you have another son. She said, wait, really? And so she didn't have a name. So for 24 hours, my name was the letter J because when my mom was born, my grandmother didn't have a middle name picked out for my mother. So just had the, her middle name was just the letter J. So my mom used the letter J for me until she came up with a name and the doctor said, all right, you know, getting ready to discharge her. Do you have a name? She said, well, yes, he's my son. So Jason went with Jason, but for 24 hours, it was the letter J and all the birthday cards and everything. My mom, there's always the letter J, you know, and so, yeah. So it could have been Jennifer. It could have been, yeah, it could have been, yeah, it was gonna. Well, my girl, the name that she picked out for me was Crystal. Crystal, interesting. <laughs> I was gonna be Crystal. Yeah. So wow. there you go. A little Crystal Gale action. I don't know. <laughs> I, but yeah. So you've always gone by JC, kind of, or yeah, friends call me JC. Um, is the C for Crystal, or is it just? <laughs> no, it's for my last name, which is Costa. Oh, Costa, right? Okay. Yeah. Or in, you know, Azorian or, you know, Portuguese, Costa. Um, so when my um, first generation in this country, my uh, uh, individually, like parents came here, my father immigrated here when he was a, a child. So, uh, and he, he actually didn't become a citizen until after I was born. So both my brother and myself were born. Then he, he became a citizen. So there's a, like a whole Portuguese contingent in, in mass, right? That kind of is there because... I think of my dear friend, Amy, who's from Lakeville and her. Correa? Correa, yeah. Oh my, she's from Lakeville? She's from Lakeville. Oh my gosh. Get out of here. That's so funny. I grew up with Correa's because I'm, you know, being Azorian and Portuguese. It's like, yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. She's got the whole Portuguese bloodline full on in Boston, Boston girl. Yeah. So yeah. that's. Okay, so you guys, that's that's awesome. That's hilarious. I get the tingles. <laughs> that's so funny. Wow. Like, yeah, that's that's exactly it. And so here in Massachusetts, there's a you know a lot of Portuguese immigrants and and immigrants from the Azores that came over. And like like my father was born in San Miguel. And uh, so wow. yeah, so yeah, fast, is. small world. <laughs> yeah, it is a small world. Have you been to Portugal yet, or? I have not. Um, when I toured throughout Europe, we didn't do Spain or Portugal. I haven't been to the Azores. We did mostly like Germany, France, Italy, yeah. Austria, like we, but we didn't do 
the Iberian Peninsula at all, as it was once known. <laughs> it's a special place, man. It's really beautiful. Mm. Portugal is an incredible country. Definitely that whole, you know, region is amazing. A lot of Western, a lot of people in the U.S. have moved there because it's so artist-friendly and easy in terms of a European place like Lisbon and stuff. And Right. Yeah. Just a, one of those pretty magical places. We've, we've been there many times. And actually, the last time I was there was in March of 2020. I was doing the I was doing acoustic dates and um, promoting the mythical human vessel stuff. And on a little tour there, um, and um, with with some other bands, and and the tour got canceled five shows in because oh. 2020. But it it got canceled in Lisbon right after the Lisbon show. So I was like, let's hang out in Lisbon for a minute, you know. Uh, we did the driver or the guy who was tour managing and driving for us, my friend Marcus, we just decided to hang and kind of have a moment, which was so cool. It's such a special city. Oh, yeah, I need to visit Portugal for a lot of reasons. I just, I want yeah. just, just a, a lot of the, the art, the culture, the food. Um, while I, you know, it's, especially my, with my family, like I, I don't eat meat and I haven't eaten meat in so long. So like for a lot in Portuguese culture, there's a lot of, a lot of meat and things like that, but there's also a lot of vegetables and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. It's gotten better, you know, the whole, um, the whole movement, you know, it's like, it's impressive to see how it's kind of entered even small towns in Europe and like, like I, and, you know, and I feel like it's the millennial generation that's really kind of brought it out in terms of in the voice of the community. Like, is they're the ones opening the little restaurants and trying to kind of build businesses around it, and and it's, but yeah, it's definitely a lot easier in Europe now than it was, and it's finally not taboo to say you're you don't eat meat. It used to be like what you know, yeah. like like how what do you eat then? Like how do you do this and. But now it's like kind of common and accepted, which is really cool. It shows how much, how far we've come with that. Yeah. It's Very so cool. true. Yeah. I love it. I mean, even back in 2009, that's when we had toured throughout Europe. We were on tour with Earth Crisis who were, you know, they're vegans. And like, so it was like, if we hadn't been on tour with them, like, I don't know, like I, you know, in the States, you know, back in like mid 2000s, some of the promoters, their idea of me, you know, not eating meat was like, all right, here's some breadsticks and a salad. And I was grateful. I, you know, I was very, very grateful, but you know, things have changed so much and it's so much better now. <laughs> better. You know, I remember stretches in Europe back in the nineties, early nineties, where I was on like bread and cheese and I had to eat some dairy and I was always lactose intolerant. So I mean, but yeah, so it was like, fuck, but I was like bread and cheese sandwiches and shit, you know, like for fucking throughout Germany stretches and like, it was like, cause there was just no, it was all fucking schnitzel and meat. Stuff yeah. And so was, yeah. I mean, I, I got really skinny. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> real. I don't know if you were like, you went through that just being, but it was just like, yeah, not eating as much, <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. Yeah, right. I do. I mean, I'm all about intermittent fasting. I'm, I'm yeah. all about it. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. So, 
it's it's been fascinating. So I can yeah, we, we gotta talk more. We have more for sure. You know? Yes, we'll absolutely have to do this again. Yeah. That'd be nice. And, and let's keep in touch and you know, maybe I'll see you on the road sometime. You know, that'd be we're... awesome. We haven't been touring nearly as much. We haven't done much in a while. Our drummer he had had a cardiac arrest back in 2015 and um, we had a slowdown significantly. And um, while he's thankfully better, um, you know, we don't push ourselves and just, um, just for us and what we were doing, it just wasn't, it's not lucrative. Um, you know, we, it's fun for us to go overseas though. You know, when we do Japan, we love it there. We love Europe and in the States we, we've slowed down a little bit and had some lineup changes, but you know, I still love it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You almost have to just do it for the sheer love of it rather than seeing it as a monetizing. Right. Just like traveling with some homies and some cool places and things and gigs and right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. And meet people and take it all in, share that yeah. energy. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, cool. Paul, thank you so very much for doing this today. Yeah. Nice to meet you, brother. Nice yeah. to meet you. Uh well, I look forward to doing this again soon. Yes, I do too. We'll All be right. in- it's been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. We're going to put we're going to put a comma at the end of this, not a period. There's a comma because yeah. our, our conversation will continue. And there you have it. I cannot express how much I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation with Paul. Thank you so much for your time, your energy and your space, Paul. You can find Paul Masvidal on Instagram at Paul Masvidal. That's P-A-U-L-M-A-S-V-I-D-A-L. You can also find Paul on the internet at listen.masvidalian, M-A-S-V-I-D-A-L-I-E-N.com. We talked about so much. We talked about the Bali Art Magic Retreat in December where Paul's friend Jake has really visioneered an eclectic mix of esoteric magicians and individuals to really create a unique experience. So that's going to be in Bali in December. We talked about Cynic's Ascension Codes, which is sincerely one of my favorite releases of 2021. And if you have not heard that yet, I would implore each and every one of you to check that out. Paul shared so many personal stories with me and I with him. These are the kinds of conversations that I absolutely love and adore about this podcast. If you're watching this, we hope you take a moment and subscribe to the channel, hit that notification bell, and be sure to like this episode. If you're listening to this episode, we hope you take a moment and rate it. We're still a new podcast, so by you rating it, you're helping us reach more listeners and viewers. So thank you. And until next time, please take care of one another and keep thinking for yourself. 